Welcome to the Peavine Podcast, where each week we bring you the message from our Sunday morning worship service with Pastor Joel Sutherland. We take timeless biblical truth and help you to apply it in the context of your daily life. If you'd like to join us live at one of our campuses or stream one of our services online, go to peavine.org for times, locations, and more information. July 19th. 1969 started as another muggy day in Cape Canaveral, Florida. But as people gathered around, reporters were there looking, they were joined by people across the globe listening and watching. We learned that this day would mark history. And they listened and they watched with anticipation and excitement. They had heard what they had hoped to accomplish, but could they actually pull it off? And it seemed that if, as if the whole world held its collective breath until it heard, liftoff, we have a liftoff. And the Apollo 11 mission lifted off, and just four days later, after traveling 218,096 miles, The first two human beings walked on the lunar surface. And we got that iconic, unforgettable statement from Neil Armstrong that I'm sure every single one of you knows well. That's one small step for man and one giant leap for mankind. It was a giant leap indeed. A peak life experience for these men and the few after them that would do it that that so few other human beings would experience and understand. But these men, these two in particular, were soon faced with a challenging question. What do you do after you walk on the moon? And so each of them, with the post-Apollo 11 readjustment hitting Buzz Aldrin, probably the worst, As he writes in his memoir, no less than 10 years later, his giant leap came to a crashing halt. And he landed on depression, alcoholism, and selling cars in Texas. Now, some of you came through the doors this morning searching after something. Maybe you're on the back end. Maybe you shot for the stars and beyond and you got it. And you've realized that it failed to satisfy you in the ways that you thought it would. There's a high chance that some of you walked through the doors either knowingly or secretively struggling with discontentment in your life this morning. Discontentment in your career path, discontentment in your marriage, discontentment in your season of life, discontentment in your life circumstances. So I want to take just the next few moments and speak to the content of contentment. So if you would stand with me as we honor the reading of God's Word. And we're going to be in Philippians 4. We're going to look at verses 10 through 19. And if you don't have your Bible, the words will be on the screen. Um, But we want to look at the content of contentment. That is, biblically, what is true contentment and what is it not? The Word of God says this. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, 
that now at last you have, re- you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. But I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God will supply all your needs according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. In this passage, I think we can draw out three keys to contentment. Three things we have to understand if we want to live with contentment. And the first is this, that you've got to learn to leverage your circumstances for God's mission. If you want to be content in life, you've got to learn to leverage your circumstances for God's mission. Now, before we jump into the first few verses, um, and because this is a standalone sermon, um, you guys okay if I just kind of give you the, the turbo context here? Can I just run through that quickly for you? One person said okay, so I'm going to go for it. Um, all right, the context of this passage and really this book, but especially this passage, is two things. It's a relationship and a gift. All right, In the relationship, uh, we understand Paul was forbidden to go to Asia. Uh, he had a vision to go to Macedonia. And so he went and he ended up in a city in the district of Macedonia in Philippi, where the Philippian church began. It was there that Lydia came to accept Christ, that seller of purple, who also became the first convert in all of Europe. And so she came to Christ. Um, We also see in a very interesting fashion Paul ending the fortune-telling business of a very successful man by casting a demon out of his servant girl. And it's pretty interesting because the text even tells us that Paul was so annoyed by this girl uh, that he casted a demon out of her. But that's where the money was coming from. So this man was not very happy. Uh, Paul and Silas were beaten and thrown in jail, but it didn't stop there. They decided to do what in prison? They decided to pray and sing hymns. That's right. Uh, And then there was an earthquake, and they were set free. But not before, of course, sharing Jesus with the jailer. And he accepted Christ, and then his whole household accepted Christ. At this point, they find out that they were Romans. Paul thought it was a good time to leave, so he headed to Thessalonica, only to understand that they were riding in the streets. We understand at this point that Philippi, the church of Philippi sent him multiple gifts. Uh, and then he moved off to Berea. The gift. Paul was, uh, as he writes this book, in prison in Rome. And the Philippians sent him a gift. But P- Paul's response to that gift is key. Understand the Philippians were partners with Paul in the gospel ministry. That was the relationship. And they supported him, not just through their relationship, but through sending him gifts. That brings us to verse 10. And it's not that Paul wasn't thankful for the Philippian support. It was that Paul understood that God was the ultimate giver of all gifts. 
and that the Philippians were the mediators of God's resources in his ministry. He understood that. Um, but the, the key here is that everything to Paul was seen through the lens of the advancement of the gospel. Every single life circumstance to him passed through that lens. Will this advance the gospel? If so, then I'm glad this is happening to me. He saw things through the lens of the meaning of life in Christ. Now, Paul lived a very interesting uh, and difficult life. We see that Paul's imprisonment did not affect his contentment. Now, this was not three meals a day and a warm shower and Xbox and free times. This is not the prison uh, that we might see today. Um, but he was in a prison, and that still didn't affect his contentment. But if we'll read in 2 Corinthians 11, we see all that Paul walked through. He says, I say this to our shame, we have been weak, but in whatever anyone dares to boast, I am talking foolishly. I also dare. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm talking like a madman. I'm a better one. With far more labors, many more imprisonments, far worse beatings, near death many times. Five times I received 39 lashes from Jews. Three times I was beaten with rods by the Romans. Once I was stoned by my enemies. Three times I was shipwrecked. I have spent a night and a day in the open sea. On frequent journeys I faced dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the open country, dangers on the sea, and dangers among false brothers. Labor and hardship, many sleepless nights, hunger, thirst, often without food, cold, and lacking clothing. If anybody had an excuse for discontentment because of life circumstances, it was Paul. And yet we don't see that from Paul. See, we have to shun thoughts or feelings of discontentment that may come simply because we have little or because we're walking through suffering. In fact, when we observe Paul's life, we see that our contentment should not be affected by our negative circumstances or our positive circumstances. Because circumstances in and of themselves are fleeting. They will quickly change. And so our contentment, your contentment this morning, cannot be affected by what you're currently walking through, good or bad. We often live with expectations for life. And a lot of times, and maybe this is you here this morning, we live with discontentment because we were living with unbiblical expectations for life that were not met. Listen, you may have bought into a lie when you started believing that you were promised wealth and comfort in this life, and then you lost your job. You may have bought into a lie when you're believing that we're promised to live that that the average life expectancy with good health and then someone you loved passed away at a young age. You may have bought into a lie when you started believing that you're promised to be married by 25 and have kids by 30, and right now you don't have either of those things. Now this may be a pessimistic view of life, but I would challenge you today to reevaluate your life expectations and define reality only through what the Word of God says and does not say. Don't expect something to happen that God has never promised will actually happen. Many studies report that upward of 80% of retired NFL players are broke within three years after retiring. There are several factors that play a part in this, but there are several themes that persist among all of them. One is a lack of competent 
financial planning advice. A greedy agent or a manipulative family member or a player who's just going to depend on their own knowledge of how finance works. Number two, financially supporting family and friends. A lot of them have to buy mom a house. Number three, a loss of assets and large alimony and child support payments from divorce. All right, if you're here with a struggling marriage and think, if I can just make some more money, it'll solve my marriage problems, please know that's not true at all. Number four, this is, this is key, a lack of awareness, meaning their spending habits suggest an incorrect belief that revenue will continue to come in forever. Let's buy and buy and buy and buy and buy because of all the things I want and want and want as if I'm going to continue to make money forever. And finally, a lack of preparation for a second career following their career in the NFL. There are other unsurprising studies that show as one accumulates wealth, specifically moving from making $100,000 a year up to becoming a millionaire, bouts of depression increase exponentially. Because what is life when you can access everything, when you can have everything? The person that did it and then some in King Solomon, what did he say life was? About everything was futile. It was a waste. 1 Timothy uh, 6, Paul says it this way, But godliness with contentment is a great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with these. But those who want to be rich fall into temptation, a trap, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, and by craving it, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. You see, Paul was not pacing his cell, inquiring of the guard every five minutes to see if the mail had come, to see if his support from the Philippians had finally arrived. Instead, he said that he learned the secret. That word secret is used twice here in this passage, and it's interesting because the second time it's used a different word than the first time. The second time it's better translated with this idea of initiation, right? The, um, the mystery religions of the time would use that word to describe how someone was initiated into their secret truths. You want to begin to leverage your circumstances for the mission of God? Uh, a few thoughts. Uh, a great start might be limiting the input of media in your life. Now, media has become the boogeyman of our day, but it's true. In media, you will find a variety of unhelpful opinions on how to and why you should change your circumstances. Understand, if you are seeking God today, you may be in your circumstance today because of your own free, sinful decisions, but if you're seeking God today, you are walking through exactly what He intends for you to walk through. And He doesn't intend for you to need to change your circumstances because He's trying to change you through your circumstances. Through media, we will find a variety of better circumstances to compare our circumstances to. You will find a marriage that seems to be better than yours. You will find a financial situation that seems to be better than yours. This person who always seems to be going on vacation and you're stuck at work. And it is true that comparison is the thief of joy. That comparison is the thief of contentment. Get rid of media in your life. You need to begin to pray that God would help you see the growth and opportunity in your circumstances. That He would help you to see beyond what you're currently walking through to His plan and to His intentions. You need to remind yourself 
the, the hard truth that God is not concerned with your comfort in this life, but with your conformity to Christ's likeness. That that is the goal. Not that you never, ever face hardship, but that you become less like you and more like Jesus. And finally, you need to adjust your expectations for living in a broken world and remind yourself that your circumstances could change at any moment. But what's the secret? That's what we want to get to. What is Paul's secret? The second truth and key to contentment that we see from this passage is that we have to depend on God's power. Philippians 4.13, we all know it. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Can we just address the elephant in the room? So many people before me have already addressed this. Um, listen, let me just throw some logic at you here. Um, it doesn't matter how much I quote this passage or how much I get it tattooed on my body, and no offense if you have this tattooed on your body. I can't magically bench press 500 pounds from quoting this passage. I can't fly to the moon myself. I can't leap over a building do you believe that God would strengthen us to do something outside His will? You think God would strengthen us to attain things with impure motives? The context of this passage is contentment. That's the secret, right? That through Christ and who He is and what He does and His faithfulness, I am able to be content in every situation. I'm able to do all things I need to do to remain obedient to God and remain content in Him. I can lose a job, I can lose a loved one, I can get a promotion, I can win the lottery, and I can still maintain a constant state of dependence on God, a constant state of contentment in Christ alone. He will absolutely strengthen us to do that. This word content is an interesting word as well. The Stoic philosophers would use this term to describe self-sufficiency. If you can just become self-sufficient then you'll really be content in life. Paul uses it here meant as Christ's sufficiency. Right? Paul's independence from want and need was rooted in his dependence on Jesus Christ. He was able to be dependent or independent from those things because he was fully dependent upon the power of God in his life. So our contentment actually comes from taking our mind and our thoughts and our heart off of our circumstances and what's happening to us and what might happen to us and what we want to happen to us and begin fully focusing everything on our relationship with God and His power in and through us. Many of you are seeking and striving to obtain something for your contentment this morning through and in a world that is only capable of bankrupting your souls. And you're looking in the wrong place. Paul understood this mindset. Philippians 3, just a chapter before, uh, starting in verse 7, says, But everything that was a gain to me, I have considered to be a loss because of Christ. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Because of, because of Him, I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them filth so that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. My goal is to know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death. We have to work, we have to work actively to direct our minds and our hearts completely toward dependence on God. Whether you're a student here this morning or a parent of a student or can remember being a student, there's a good chance at one point you've had a, a project 
that you had to go home and work on. And I remember some of my middle and high school project, class projects really well. Um, I remember Miss Billingsley's uh, eighth grade algebra class and this odd cross-stitching project. I don't know what it had to do with algebra, um, but I remember it because I had a really daunting um, goal for that project, and I realized the night before it was due that I couldn't do it, and I got a zero on that project, uh, so I remember that one. But the main reason I remember my school projects was because of my dad. Um, at some point, he started helping me with my, with my projects, and um, I've, uh, I've, I've shared this with young adults before. Like my mousetrap car, we used some special CDs for the wheels, and um, like... Uh, it, it, it was probably faster than the car you drove here today. Uh, like, like everyone else's puttered down the hallway, and mine was legitimately dangerous. Uh, that was my mousetrap car that my dad helped me build. Uh, I had the cool opportunity of taking a forensic science class as an elective my senior year, and our class project was to bring in really just like a, 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 a mock model of a famous murder case. And so everyone else came in with weird combinations of popsicle sticks and globs of Play-Doh. And I brought a to-scale uh, setup of the O.J. Simpson murder case, which included his Bronco. Um, and I could barely get it through the door, and I guarantee you they could have used it in the case and got it right. But, um, listen, uh, I, I, I never had any anxiety about school projects, and I had a ton of confidence because of my dad. Um, I didn't believe that I could do it, but I knew without a doubt that he could help me with it. And I wonder why we can't have that same dependence on a perfect heavenly father. I wonder why our belief that, you know what, I, I, know, what I'm, I know I can't do it. I know I can't walk through what I'm walking through obediently, but I absolutely know, I know I believe in the power of God, and I believe I can walk through this obediently and with contentment. So long as God helps me. Amen. I think we need to look no further than our own sin and struggles for motivation to stop depending on our own strength and wisdom. We fail daily, and we know that more than anybody, and yet we're still trying to do things all by ourselves. I think we need to apply the same logic to man-made processes and theories. Look, if a man, if a human being was behind it, there's a great chance it's flawed and an even greater chance that it's just completely incorrect. We need to stop seeing prayer as a last resort because a consistent prayer life is a sure mark of dependence on God. We've got to depend on God's power. We need God's power to do what we're called to do, but we also at times just need God to come through for us. That's the final key to contentment here. The third truth from this passage is that we have to trust in God's provision. In the remainder of this passage, Paul continues to thank the Philippians for their gift. But he also uses it as an opportunity to further support his dependency on Jesus. We see there in verse 17, Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. Uh, Paul was actually equally, or if not more, joyful because the blessings that would come to the Philippian church because of their partnership with him and gospel ministry he wasn't concerned about himself. In verse 20, or, uh, in, uh, in verse 19 actually, it says, and my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Um, there's a sense there we can feel that, that he has an obvious trust in God's ability to provide for him 
So much so, he's not worried about his needs. He's, he's, he's assuring the Philippians that he'll also provide for them. He's an obvious trust in God's ability to provide, in part because he has experienced God come through over and over and over again. If we can believe, one, that God has unlimited resources, and if we can recall past provisions in our own life, we will find the ability to trust God with our present needs. If you can believe that this morning, that God's resources cannot be exhausted, if you can look back to all the times that God has come through for you, then you will find the ability to trust Him here today. There are large and detailed studies that have shown uh, that the structure and stability of a family directly affects the well-being of children. One study, don't, don't shoot the messenger, one study observed the differences in children raised by married parents versus those raised by cohabitating parents. What they found is interesting, that homes of married parents prove more likely to see commitment, nonviolence, and stability. A major indicator, children born to cohabitating couples were almost twice as likely to see their parents break up. The children in, uh, in married parent homes uh, had access to higher levels of income and assets, more involvement by fathers, better physical and mental health among parents, and more family stability. Other studies have shown that instability in children can produce a variety of a long list of negative side effects, including but not limited to poor academic performance, a lack of social skills, and even the inability to regulate emotions. Children need stability and predictability, and so does the child of God. But now, obviously, I'm not advocating a belief today that this world is ever going to be stable or predictable for you. That this world is ever going to be unchanging for you. That this world is ever going to be in a, in a place where you can predict what comes next. That's never, ever going to be your reality. But you can trust a God who never changes. You can trust a God who knew the end from the beginning. Who has inexhaustible resources. Who has the ability and the character to provide your every need. Maybe this morning you need to put the goodness and the faithfulness of God to the test. And finally, you need to place the burden of your needs on God's big shoulders. Let Him carry it. You need to express gratitude to God on a daily basis. You cannot, if you want to walk in contentment, you cannot have spiritual amnesia. You cannot forget what God has done for you. And in fact, you need to confront your worries about your needs with memories of God's provision in the past. You need to walk down memory lane and remind yourself that God has come through over and over and over again. In a very different thought, you might be sitting here this morning with the ability to meet the needs of someone else. My only question for you is, what are you waiting for? If you see a need, meet that need if you can. To the child of God, God made the ultimate provision for your soul through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Jesus made the ultimate provision for your deepest pains and struggles by ensuring that they would one day come to an end as you're ushered into the presence of God and your heavenly home. God has provided for you in the greatest sense. 
as we close, I want to remind you one last time of just the danger of chasing what you want. It says, it was spring, but it was summer I wanted. The warm days and the great outdoors, it was summer, but it was fall I wanted. The colorful leaves and the cool, dry air, it was fall, but it was winter I wanted. The beautiful snow and the joy of the holiday season. It was now winter, but it was spring I wanted. The warmth and the blossoming of nature. I was a child, but it was adulthood I wanted. The freedom and the respect. I was 20, but it was 30 I wanted. To be mature and sophisticated. I was middle-aged, but it was 20 I wanted. The youth and the free spirit. I was retired, but it was the middle age that I wanted. The presence of mind without limitations. My life was over. I never got what I wanted. There are three keys to contentment. Three things we've got to understand and practice. If we want to walk through the good times and the bad times, remaining content in Christ alone. We've got to leverage our circumstances for God's mission. We have to depend on God's power. We have to trust in God's provision. What a great challenge from God's word this morning. And I don't know what spiritual decision you need to make this morning, but maybe the decision you need to make is to begin a relationship with Jesus. That starts with you understanding that you're a sinner. Your sin has separated you from God, and there's nothing you can do to fix that separation. You've got to be willing to admit that. And then you've got to believe that Jesus died on the cross, that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day to pay the penalty for my sin and for your sin. You've got to believe that. And then you have to confess him as your personal Lord and Savior. He wants a relationship with you this morning. And if God has spoken to your heart, then maybe today you need to give your life to Christ. Simply tell God this, Lord, I know I'm a sinner and I'm sorry for my sin. I believe that Jesus died on the cross, that he was buried and that he rose again on the third day to pay the penalty for my sin. And Lord, right now, I ask you to come into my heart, take away my sin, be my Savior. Lord, I give my life to you in Jesus' name. If you prayed that this morning for the very first time and you meant it with all your heart, uh, we just dropped a link in the chat box that says, I commit my life to Christ. Click on that link. It'll take you to a website that'll ask you for a couple of pieces of information fill that out. We're going to send you some stuff in the mail. And then I personally am going to connect with you this week to help you take next steps on your journey with Jesus. It's been great to worship together this morning. God bless you. Have a great week. We hope that you've enjoyed the message this week as we help equip you to apply God's word to your daily life. For the latest updates about what's happening around Peavine City, be sure to connect with us on social media. For more information about Peavine, to get in touch with us or check out one of our services, visit us at peavine.org. Thanks for listening.